Bem-vindos ao Type Theory for All Podcast. This is your host, Pedro Abreu, and today we are going to have a deep conversation with Talia Ringer. She was freshly hired as an assistant professor at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. She did her PhD at University of Washington with her thesis on proof repair. She's very active on Twitter, and I wouldn't be surprised if you're here because of that. In this episode, we talk about her transition from the PhD to being a professor, her work on diversity, her ADHD, and how it has affected her career so far. We are also going to touch on the delicate topic of sexism in academia. All that while I try very hard to not be a terrible host who can't even say my guest's last name. Before we jump into this episode, I'd like to thank Overblur for designing the amazing logo of this podcast. If you didn't notice, this logo is the denotation of NA as in all, which is my key goal of this podcast, that is to translate and talk about topics related to type theory in a more accessible manner. Overblur is run by a close friend of mine in Brazil, and his specialty is on designing logos, so he patiently sat down with me for many hours so that I could explain type theory to him so that he could make an idea come out of this. If you're interested in doing logo or some sort of design work, make sure to check his Instagram and Twitter at Overblair Studio. I'll leave the links in the description. Now let's get into it. Welcome everyone to one more episode of the Type Theory for All podcast. This is your host, Pedro Abreu. Today, we are going to talk a little bit with Talia Oh my God, I just noticed that I don't know how to pronounce your surname. Is it Ringer <laughs> or Ringer? Ringer. It's Ringer. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> she is an assistant professor at University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Welcome, Talia. <laughs> Thanks. Good to see you. So how about we start talking about how did you get into this world of proof engineering and doing proofs? Because if I remember correctly, you actually have a, an undergrad, you did your bachelor's on mathematics? Yeah, my, my bachelor's was in like elliptic curve cryptology, oh, <laughs> very, wow. very much on the math side of things. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of used to joke that I did like some binary searching to find out like how, how theoretical I want to go. Because um, I, I started off with this like elliptic curve crypto work, then I... Um, after undergrad, I worked as a software engineer at Amazon for three years, <laughs> just like, um, yeah, hands-on software engineering. Um, and then, yeah, when I started off grad school, I was kind of exploring a bit. I did some work on um, uh, user-driven access control, which is kind of like program analysis for access control in uh, like mobile operating systems like Android. Um and then uh, some work on like test input generation with constraint solvers. Um, but yeah, in the background, I was taking a class on using these proof assistants. Um, and I think I was like, I was frustrated by how hard things were, but they felt like they were hard in a really like a way that did not feel fundamental. <laughs> Uh, like we read this this paper from the like 1970s, this like social processes paper, which is really critical of verification and says like, oh, this is never going to work, etc. Um, and they listed like a whole bunch of problems with verification, um, 
and I remember reading it and being like, these are all true. And like, there's still a lot of these are still problems, but I don't feel like they should have to be <laughs> like mm -hmm. these all feel surmountable. And like my takeaway from reading this paper is like, we should be working on these things. <laughs> like, So I think I just got kind of obsessed um, and I just could not kind of turn back after that. <laughs> So did your university have any introduction to programming languages or, or Coq or Agda, something like that? In, in undergrad or in grad school? In grad school. Because you said yeah. that it, you started looking at those things in grad school, right? Yeah, yeah. It was a... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I did take programming languages classes in, in undergrad, but the proof mm -hmm. assistant stuff but definitely definitely in grad school at the beginning are like grad programming languages class at UW. Uh, we did that whole thing in Coq. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it was an adventure. Wow. Wow. Yeah. No, yeah. Here, here at Purdue, we also do grad program languages in Coq. It's super fun, right? It is. Just writing proofs and pro functional programming and reasoning about stuff. It's, it's, it's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really beautiful too. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I think it's, it's hard to see all the beautiful like theory underneath it when you're first learning it, I feel like. But I feel like right. the more, yeah, the more I learn, it's like just the more beautiful it gets. <laughs> right. At the, at the beginning, you feel like you're struggling against the tool, right? They're just like trying yeah. to get things to compile and to go through. But as as you as you get better, and as any in any two, you start to appreciate. Oh wow, there are a lot of intricate stuff that it can do for you automatically, right? I yeah. totally see that. And also, yeah, doing doing proofs about about your own programs then that's so much more fundamental as you said right things are just are just so much better <laughs> i feel so much better at least i don't know for me yeah i think it's really cool that you can get such strong guarantees about your program um and like really impactful um like i think yeah, I don't know. I think there's a lot of this view that I grew up with before, not grew up with. I mean, I didn't start programming until college, but like when I started programming, like there was this view that like bugs are inevitable. All you yeah. can do is like, yeah. you know, test as like as well as you can and, and then kind of pray. Uh, <laughs> and it, it just feels to me like like there are large classes of bugs that are not inevitable. Like you could literally rule them out. You just have to be able to specify them and then write these proofs. And like, that's still hard, but it I don't feel like it has to always be hard and it's so powerful. I don't Even know. if you don't go all it's the way to cool. writing the proof, just by having a robust enough type system, you already can rule out a lot of, a lot of bugs, right? Yeah. yeah. Are you going to, do you plan to give any programming languages class now that you are a professor? <laughs> yeah. So I'm starting off with like, I don't know. So when, when you first start off, they tell you to, to, uh, to teach a class that's like, like really close to your area of expertise, so like a grad seminar of some kind. Um, so next semester, I'm teaching a proof automation class, which oh, I'm really cool. excited about. Yeah, it's going to be really fun. Um, I, I, yeah. What's your plan um, there? It's it's pretty cool. It's like a, um, so it's a grad seminar, and it's like in kind of two week blocks, like a different kind of area of of proof automation. So everything from like. Um, the intersection of proof assistance and constraint solvers to uh, like usable automation to machine learning for proofs to like, um, you know, different languages for automation, like program logics and like tactic languages, proof languages. Um, so each of those in like two week blocks. Um, then like the first day of each week, 
is like a deep dive into some particular paper in that area. Um, and then the second day of each week is actually like jumping into the artifact, like the actual code associated with that paper. Um, and so there will be like a collaborative like hacking session together, which I'm I'm excited about. It kind of demystifies this automation. Yeah. Oh my god! Can I come over to Urbana Champagne <laughs> to take your class? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a lot of people excited. I'm like, I wish I could. Yeah, I wish I could just make everything open. I don't know how it works. Maybe one day. You you just you just started being a professor this semester, right? Yeah. How do, how does how does that work? And you, did did you have to <laughs> to to give a class this semester? Like, um. Well, I started a little bit late. Like I, um. Like, because I graduated in June and I was supposed to start in August, I was like, I can't. <laughs> like, especially after the <laughs> pandemic, I was so yeah. tired. I was like, there's just no way. I can't, yeah, I can't yeah. just go jump from one thing to the other. So um, I asked for a little extra time. So I started officially in October, um, which just means that, like, the first time I'm teaching is in January, but I don't use, like, a teaching, like, release. I can use that later. Um and uh yeah like tenure clock starts a bit later so i don't have to feel too like stressed out right now so yeah the the first like the first class i'll be teaching is in january um yeah actually um i don't understand very well yet how this professorship works like being assistant professor or tenure track or you know like applications and all of that there, it seems so so cryptic and hard to understand and, and scary even for, for a PhD student that is interested in doing that. But, you know, how, how does, could you give us a brief summary how all of that works, uh, the application <laughs> process or, you know, like what are the, the needs that you see for applying for becoming a professor in programming languages? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the application process I don't know. It's interesting. So I was on the market in a really weird year. Like it was the, the pandemic had like, you know, just hit before that. Um, and so there were a lot, a lot of like hiring freezes and that sort of thing. Um, so like, um, yeah, the, the big thing there was just like a lot of the places where I would have like normally applied or just like not hiring at all <laughs> or something like this. Um, so it was a little scary. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, uh, so I just applied to, to like a really broad, uh, like array of places. I think, um, yeah, I mean, what's needed? I mean, you have your statements. Um, there's like what, like research statement, diversity statement, teaching statement, um, and uh, you get letters, some of them from people at your university, hopefully at least like one external collaboration where you can get a good letter from someone. That's the letter outside. of recommendation. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, I think that all matters a lot. Um, I I mean, the statements definitely matter a lot. Um, but then there's also just like, it's also, they have all these, all the universities will have these like invisible criteria <laughs> that they won't like, um, and you can't know ahead of time um, whether they're going to tell you about them, how seriously they're going to take them, whether you meet them. Um, so in some sense, like the only thing you really can do is like apply super broadly and like put your, you know, put your best foot forward, like 
show how you think you're going to be good faculty, but like it, you can't optimize for all these secret constraints on the back end. You can't like really go for like one particular school or um, I don't know that that stuff is really hard. Um, if you have constraints, you can you can communicate them if they're really like you know really important to you. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I had another thought here, but I forgot it. What's the statement of diversity? Oh, the diversity statement? Yeah, I mean, so typically for people who haven't done a lot of diversity work, this is often just sort of like your plans for like improving the state of like diversity and inclusion um, in the field. But um, for people who have done a lot of work, you could also talk about the things you've done. Um, for me, I had done a lot of work, so um, it was natural for me to, to talk about, you know, some of the programs that I'd started or participated in and how they kind of fit into my larger, like, vision of diversity. So I know that you have been organizing PA, uh, the, the mentoring sessions, and I don't know, you are, you are so active on Twitter <laughs> and talking about all different, all different things. Do you want to give us a, a, a brief idea of the... Let's start with what's the mentoring? Yeah, the like the the like yeah, Sig Plan M, the long term mentoring program. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess I started that like um maybe it's been almost a year and a half now. Or I guess a little over a year. And it was it was kind of an impulsive thing, honestly, at first. Like it was, uh, <laughs> Yeah, like um so I was co chairing the like PLMW, the Programming Languages Mentoring Workshop at ICFP. Um, yeah, and Stephanie was like, I want Stephanie you to Irish. do, yeah, she was okay. like, I want you to do something, you know, some social event, like, or something, um, but, you know, like, have complete freedom, like, do whatever you want, Dolly. I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> and I, yeah, I thought hard, and I was like, you know, with the pandemic, um, I think the need for people to be connected to the community is like strong was stronger than ever. Like people were very isolated. Um, and I was thinking like, you know, also we have all these short-term connection programs like PLMW where you meet these people and then they kind of disappear forever. Like it's, it's unless you're one of the people who like really takes initiative and tries to like make this into a long-term relationship of some kind, like you meet a mentor and then you'll never, you know, often just never speak to your mentor again. <laughs> um, yeah. And that seemed like, you know, not, it just, it seemed less than ideal. Um, so I think I was thinking about like long-term programs, um, which I'd participated in a few of. I participated in some at Amazon as a software engineer, um, also as a mentor at UW for this like queer mentoring program. Um, so I had, you know, a couple programs as inspiration. Um, yeah, and I thought it'd be really cool if we could do something like that, um, you know, within the programming languages community and have it be cross-institutional uh, so that, you know, people get these, like, outside perspectives as well, um, but for, like, a long, sustained period of time. So, yeah, it'll, it'll pair people up for, like, a year by default, uh, mentors and mentees, um, and it's it reaches right now everywhere from like like undergrads through like senior faculty even at, at mentees uh, which oh, is wow. kind of cool yeah wow. <laughs> um and 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 people in industry including like software engineers who want to come back and go to grad school or something like that wow. which is nice yeah 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 
Um, and it's like, I think like 30 something different countries. <laughs> so it's been really good. I, I like, you know, after I started it up, Alexandra Silva was like, um, wanted to make this into like an official committee through SIG plan. So then we, we did and like, it's been great. I don't know. I'm <laughs> just really yeah, no, enjoying that's, it. That's absolutely awesome. Thanks for, for organizing that. It's, it's a really good program. I'm actually surprised that I feel that professors, they have so much, so little free time to <laughs> participate in these things. You know, like it's kind of surprising that we can still make this work with. Yeah. And there are also a lot of grad student mentors, which is useful and like industry mentors too. Um, but I think people, people do see value a lot in like helping. Um, and, and yeah, it's like not a huge time commitment um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for people to mentor. Yeah, although I have been thinking more about like ways to reward mentors a bit more, like, because um, we did our first survey recently, like looking at how everyone is is feeling about the program, um, and like mentees were like um, almost uniformly like benefiting very strongly, like very yeah. happy with it, which is great. Um, mentors were like you know, they still want to continue, but they were like, first of all, they didn't think that they were helping their mentees as much as their mentees thought they were being helped. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was like, oh gosh, you know, there's some kind of communication thing there. And like, that's, that's really important for like morale. Yeah. So I want to, I want to have some kind of official, like, like, like thank you system where a mentee can, you know, type in some thank you message and it sends off some nice like card or, and, you know, maybe like a small gift from a sponsor or something to a mentor. So yeah, I've been, I've been looking into that. <laughs> <laughs> Your mind just, just doesn't stop having ideas. Huh? <laughs> 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 yeah. I just need more time. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. That is awesome. So what other, what are kinds of diversity stuff have you worked on? Yeah. I mean, I mentioned the queer mentoring program that I did, um, in in grad school and i think that that was one of the things that was really really special i think i a lot of the mentoring i'd done before that had been like you know helping people decide between like do i go to this big tech company or this big tech company or like you know what kinds of like research problems should i work on and stuff like that um and the queer mentoring program i think um i realized just how much of a difference a mentor can make in someone's life like like it can be like a life or death kind of thing. Um, and I think that was part of why I saw, you know, when I was started doing SIGPLAN M, like, like uh, making non-technical mentorship also a part of this, because a lot of people do really want like a, you know, like an LGBT mentor in the community or something like this. And it's huge. I guess that's part of it. I don't know. I also started like a, it's like a care committee at, uh, at UW, um, which is just a way of having like a default support network for people during like difficult times uh, for grad students. Um, so we had like, I think our most successful program was like care baskets where anyone in uh, any any grad student or I guess anyone at UW um, in CSE could like request a care basket for someone and then we would put it together and send it to them. I think this is still going on oh my God, now that, that I've is, left and it was that is awesome. It's great. Yeah. I think it was nice just for improving like a sense of community and mm -hmm. support. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah. Those are a couple things. I don't know. There's a lot of invisible work, which I think it's hard stuff to like, I can't talk about it, but I think that's some of the more important stuff. So I hope, I hope we find ways of like making that more visible sometime. Do you think now that you are a professor, do you think your status has changed somehow? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do. I do think so. Um, It's weird. Yeah. Just like status and like how I'm viewed and stuff. Or yeah, 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 in general, both in academia and in your daily life. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think I think people take me more seriously by default. Really? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> good. Yeah, it's it's funny. Yeah, but it, sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's like like I'll throw in some like like BS opinion that I have about like <laughs> like machine learning or right. like natural language processing yeah. on the internet and people are like oh wow this person thinks this thing I'm like no I'm not, not an expert in this I don't know what I'm talking yeah. about because <laughs> like you're just a, a computer science professor to most right. people but it's like it's like I'm still learning I've, I have like one year less than one year of machine learning experience <laughs> I don't know um so yeah I don't know that that stuff is weird um yeah yeah although sometimes i don't know yeah the the increase in status i think also like you notice in how uh students will treat you by default like like i met you before yeah like when i was still a student so like you just treat me as if like i'm a you know like we, we just like we know each other that's cool <laughs> yeah um <laughs> but when i meet people who never knew me like until I started as faculty, I, sometimes they seem like more nervous to talk to me mm-hmm. the first time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, so it's been a lot of like, yeah, I don't know. I put so much effort into making my office like like um, signal that I'm a person that people can talk to. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just to make it like a little, yeah, a little That's easier. Right. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> How do you feel the difference between being a professor woman or being a professor man? Do you think there are differences there? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about the other day. I think like there's a part of me that that kind of hoped maybe it was really foolish, but it like kind of hoped that like the sexism would go away at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz there's always been some kind of sexism throughout like my whole career. Like uh um in undergrad, it was like unwarranted attention from some faculty that I just didn't want, and I would be very clear that I didn't want it. In as a software engineer at Amazon, it was like people kind of um, ignoring my opinions and assuming I didn't know anything technical by default. Um, and then, you know, in grad school, um, there's a lot of like systemic issues. There were some things with like. Um, uh, one time I got asked if I was like someone's wife when I like walked into an office wow. <laughs> with a research, someone I was working with on research. And like, is that your wife? <laughs> I'm wow. like, no. Wow. Um, yeah, just kind of stuff like that for a while. But then, you know, I thought like, um, yeah, I, I just, I had hoped in some way um, and, and sometimes more serious things like that, you know, there was like an internet harasser that, that, just seem to mostly target like oh women. my god i yeah, yeah. I, I saw that what happened to you i'm so sorry you want to gonna give a brief explanation to the listener <laughs> what happened i don't know it's a lot it was it was just yeah it was just a ridiculous yeah i don't know i don't even know where to start with that um yeah 
<laughs> okay. okay, so here's here's but... here's here's a question then. Why do you think we as well, particularly me as a man, for example, what can we do to help change that? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's really so it's at every level. So I guess like as as faculty, the biggest thing I see is mostly that um there are a lot of like more senior men like with whom I'd interacted before in the community. Um and had very pleasant interactions with as a student. Uh, but suddenly as faculty, it's like, I don't know if I have enough power and status that they like don't hold back on on things that like, you know, might have sexist roots or something. Um, or, I'm, not, I'm not following, sorry. Um, I think most of what I've encountered as faculty is new and different. So I feel like what's needed at every level is a little bit different. Yeah, and I'm I'm just not sure where to start. Like, I feel like you'd have to pick a particular <laughs> problem. <laughs> There's so um, many, right? Yeah. Uh, so, like, for things like harassment and so on, um, like Sigplan cares, I think is is fantastic, and I think gets use for that sort of thing. Um, like having people you can talk to by default when you go through something like that, and actually maybe even as faculty, like I um like going through some of this recently, I, I spoke to, um, a friend who like, you know, is faculty and is also on cares, um, just because I knew it was safe. (laughs) Um, yeah. And cares also like, even, um, like I was helping a student navigate a situation. Um, and, uh, that put a lot of, um, it put me through a lot of feelings myself uh, that I wasn't sure how to deal with. Um, and this is kind of the like invisible labor I was talking about, which also like, like on just overwhelmingly is something that like women and like people of color and so on, like all take on. Um, and even then to, to deal with the sort of emotional side of things, I spoke to someone who's also on cares <laughs> and asked, you know, like, like, how do you deal with this emotional labor? <laughs> like, how do you process it? Um, and I got some really helpful answers. So yeah, I think, I think cares has been incredibly helpful for me. Um, yeah. And I think, I think a lot of the invisible labor of dealing with these things like is already happening so i think maybe recognizing it and rewarding yes. it in some way is really important just for like retention um and, and also for building punishment maybe in some sense right I, i'm sure there's there are things that Sigplan and acm could do about about it yeah for... you have to be careful because um if you act without people's consent you can like cause like retaliation um so I think always you want to start by like prioritizing the people who are harmed. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure what to do beyond that. Some of these things are so small and they just Mm -hmm. eat away at you like slowly. (laughs) And they're not things where it's like you want this person to get punished. It's like you have to have a conversation with this person and explain why they said something that was out of line. Um, But then when you have those conversations every day, you get really tired. Oh yeah. Um, and that's why I think like the recognizing invisible labor is, is really huge. That's actually the, the main reason why I would like to, to talk about this publicly is because I feel this is a ma- much, much of the issue are ma- microaggressions, right? Yeah. And things that go very deep into how the society works and people, many people are not even aware 
that that this happens is just how they've been thought and like thought how to how to they see people acting this way and they think it's normal right but it's not it's time to for us to recognize this and start changing so talking about about it in my point of view is is, is, a, is a very big first step yeah yeah and i think some of the things i've seen that are just pervasive and hard to get past are like um like erasure um so like not recognizing an idea that you know like a woman has has given to you or something which is why i'm like over the top annoying about people crediting each other for things um and people yeah i don't know (laughs) but there's there's a root for it it's like i've experienced that and it's upsetting Mm -hmm. and i want to make sure that you know i can always trace like like who has told me what and make sure that they're credited appropriately um yeah and then like uh things like um uh kind of like people centering themselves if you bring up something like sexist that happens I think often there's a lot of like you're only doing this because I'm a man like what about me I've also gone through hard things (laughs) and it's like it's it's like okay (laughs) we can talk about those things another time though (laughs) um or or a lot of uh, tokenization like you know oh but I I know some woman who didn't go through these things and and um it's like that that's true but people have different experiences and yeah I don't know it's a such a big problem yeah there, there's a lot well it's hard yeah. to know where to start <laughs> <laughs> thank you for for being so open about it yeah. let's change gears a little bit talk of some some stuff that is a little more cheerful <laughs> maybe <laughs> um what are your thoughts on postdoc postdocs interesting like in general like as a concept or yeah what <laughs> what made you decide to not go through a postdoc oh yeah that's interesting yeah i mean part of it is is uh <laughs> unfortunately still kind of linked to to the 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 sexism conversation which is that like um there's a lot of like moving around um and i think the constraints on moving around um on relationships are a lot worse for women because um there's more of a norm of following men around for their jobs um but i've had like three relationships end because of um because of you know moving for jobs so I want to make sure that like, I just wanted, I just wanted stability. Like, I was like, please just give me some stability so I can like, you know, go on with that part of my life. Um, and I, but I also just felt ready. Like I, um, I kind of knew what I wanted and, and it seemed like if I could get a job that I liked as faculty, then I was just, I was just ready for it. I might as well just start. Um, yeah, I think they can be really useful. Um, they can give you some expertise like outside of um, you know, outside of the area where you've you've been focusing. There might be a really nice collaboration opportunity. Um, a lot of people will do like a visiting year in industry, um, which I'm now doing like after the fact. <laughs> so well, I guess I'm doing a summer, but yeah. Um, and that that can be really cool. Um, there's like a chance to, um, you know, strengthen your application a bit. There's a chance to like wait out recessions a little bit, 
Um, so I think a lot of people do postdocs during recession years, like especially, yeah. um, you know, these last couple of years. So yeah, there, I think there are a lot of good reasons that people do them. I think I was like, I just, I just wanted to go on <laughs> and start. <laughs> oh yeah. Another, another big reason is to, to grow your collaboration network, right? Like meet yeah, people, more true. people so that you can work with and whatnot. But you, yeah. you already have so many collaborators. That... <laughs> yeah. I feel like limiting my collaborations has been a harder problem for me recently. Really? Um, I think cause I just talk a lot and like when you talk a lot, people like just get to know you for that <laughs> and, then, um, and I'm always just yeah shooting out random thoughts and then then yeah there are a lot of people who want to work with me and it's great like I love it um I always feel bad when I'm like that also sounds fun but I already have five projects <laughs> so I don't think I can do a sixth right now <laughs> do you plan to stay in touch with your PhD advisor and still collab are you still collaborating with him yeah yeah I have like Uh, I guess one collaboration that's with uh, with my advisor and some students at UW. Um, yeah, yeah, because we had a grant together, so it was kind of a natural continuation of that. Mm, okay. Yeah. No, yeah, I'm I'm asking this because I've seen before that uh, when hiring a professor, one of the big things that the committee is going to look at is if you have enough collaborators out of your PhD advisor, right? So I was curious how how would that go? Yeah, I don't I don't know so much if it's well I think there there are a couple things at play there. There's like having external letters and stuff like that. A lot of that is just because um your your advisor like is uh is biased <laughs> and has a conflict of interest and like they want you to succeed not just for you but also because It's good for them, right? <laughs> um, and so, like, they want, yeah, having external collaborators gives you someone, you know, whose success is not tied to your success that they can, you know, like, get some thoughts about you um, from. And then I think there's also, like, you want to be able to distinguish yourself from your advisor in some ways. And one way is to have a network of external collaborators. One way is to have already worked on something that, you know, wasn't your advisor's, like, area of expertise. Um One way is to have a really strong vision in an area that isn't, you know, what your advisor is doing. There, there are a lot of different ways that you can distinguish yourself. So um, I don't know. I think it's important to do that in some ways, but it doesn't necessarily mean like, I think nowadays a lot of people will continue doing some collaborations with a PhD advisor, especially if there's something like a grant or, yeah. How do you compare being a PhD student and being a professor now? <laughs> That's interesting. It's different in a lot of ways. Um, I like it a lot more being faculty, honestly, right. um, so far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the big thing is that, like, I felt like, um, I think for the way my personality works, I really like to be, like, working on a whole bunch of things at once. Um, and... Um, it's really fun for me to be able to spend some time on like a type theory project and spend some time on like a machine learning project in the same week. <laughs> and I just never was really able to do that um, as, as a PhD student, especially at the end, because you're very, very focused on your thesis work. Um, and type theory in particular is, is very tiring. I feel like it's, yeah. it's fun. Like yeah. I love it, but yeah, like my brain is just fried yes. at the end yes. of the day. Yeah. 
so it's really nice to have another thing where like um if i'm doing all this hardcore type theory and like i'm just exhausted exhausted i can just open up you know some some python like <laughs> like, like hack in it like train a model and see what happens it's like okay <laughs> um so i yeah, heard you have a good a really good time on <laughs> using python i don't like the python part <laughs> <laughs> i i do like the I think the, some of the machine learning stuff is fun in its own way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's still machine learning for proofs, but it's fun because the results are so like, you can get results so quickly. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. So that's been cool. And then like having students is, is really fun. Um, you already have students? Yeah. Yeah. It was a little weird. It's like we have a... Um, I don't know. UIUC like hires some some students on like uh, like TA ships uh, before they have like a good advisor fit, um, mm-hmm. and so yeah, there were a couple of students who were just really good fit. So we just started working together. <laughs> like, um, yeah, it's been cool. Uh, so here at Purdue, professors that are starting, they got something called ten- tenure package, where they get some some money to fund some students at their first few years. Do you get that? Yeah, you get you get like a startup package. Yeah, it's like, um, yeah, it's just some sum of money to pay students and and fund other things like equipment, conference travel, and so on, um, and your summer salary um, in your first few years. Um, the assumption is like before you have grants. Um, yeah, but you also then apply for grants, which just kind of extends that money. Yeah, so, yeah. so you can do more of that. And then you have um, the first six, five to seven years. You get you have to plan for um, getting tenured. How does that work? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I know that much about it yet. Um, <laughs> Just I think, <laughs> I think we have a meeting tomorrow. That's all the assistant professors where they talk about like promotion criteria and stuff. Okay. Um, I gather that it's like. Um, it's mostly mostly research focused, but here they, but they also care about teaching service and they're adding diversity here, um, which is cool. Uh, and like you have some giant like internal CV, I guess, where you put in like all the things you've done. Wow. <laughs> um, and then there's a big letter process, and it's super weird. There's like some letters you ask for. And then some letters that come, I think, like unsolicited, like they wow. just ask for letters about you, <laughs> wow. which which I find scary. Like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it seems to mostly be OK. I don't know. I thought I would be really stressed about this when I got here. Like, like it seemed like one of the big stressors. Um, and then I think, you know, I spent so much time in grad school, like pushing for this job that I want. And now I feel like um you know, if I have to give up something fundamental about myself or like, like work way harder, way differently than I'd like to, you know, just to keep the job, um, then, you know, maybe I'd rather be like running the mentoring program full time or something. (laughs) So, so there are some things I won't give up. Like, like people say not to spend too much time on service. I'm like, I'm going to spend the time I want on service uh, because I think it's good for the community and I enjoy it. And if people decide that they don't want me because I spend too much time on service, then I will go do something else. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That, that is a great vision. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I can make it work. I think I think people have gotten more understanding of like community impacts and the, the systems have started to reward this a bit more and like hopefully that continues. But I'm not going to let it worry me too much for now. Do you like Urbana so far? Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> it's not Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I definitely miss Seattle. Um, yeah, I was, I was, I joked to someone once that, like, the worst part of going to grad school at UW is that it's hard to get a job at UW after going to grad school at UW. <laughs> it was like, I miss Seattle a lot. But, um, no, I mean, I like, I like Champaign. It's like, um, like it's it's a very quiet place um but there's still like like everything that I could need pretty much like there are ways to build communities like I'm I'm in a lesbian and feminist choir for example <laughs> and so like like yeah um you know there are like really specific things like that and it's great and like the job is fantastic um the university is great like I've I've been really happy here so far so Yeah, you made it. Congratulations. It's awesome. <laughs> I hope to be there some someday. <laughs> there I mean being a professor and and all of that. <laughs> you also contribute with the industry. Do you want to tell us more about that? Sure, yeah. Yeah, I guess the the collaboration with industry, that's like a so this is happening in the summer, like starting in May. Uh the the upcoming collaboration with industry. Um I will be a 50, 50% faculty visitor at Google. <laughs> wow. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's cool. It's a way that they have to like make it easy to collaborate with, um, with people there. And I really, um, I met my collaborator like on Twitter. <laughs> strangely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so like we would sometimes get into these, they're like arguments, but they're like good arguments. I don't know how to explain right. it. Yeah, like, yeah. Like we would argue so much about research because we had different views on things, but they were like different and very complementary views. And they would always converge towards some really good idea, <laughs> like very quickly. So I was like, this is cool. I really want to like sit down and work with this person. Um, so I, you know, eventually when I realized that this kind of program was a thing, like I, I just, you know, put together a proposal with him um, over the course of like a couple hours because I didn't know that we needed a proposal and <laughs> neither did he. But <laughs> we hacked it together in a couple hours. It was great. Um, and and yeah, like I, I will be visiting there next summer and, and I'm excited. Like it's, it's going to be a project that's at the intersection of... Um, so it's, it's at the intersection of machine learning, uh, proof repair and uh like automatic formalization uh so like going from natural language for example you know theorems to uh to formal theorems um automatically in in, in like a pre-existent like translation uh from that's really cool yeah so so it's, it's at this intersection of all three of these things um and um you know he's like a really good like like deep learning expert it's christian Sagetti. uh I, I don't know like it's it's cool because I I don't really have that much experience there. I really feel like it's an important time for me to get a little better at that stuff because I think it will. It's like one it's one tool really in this this toolbox for proof automation and it's a silly tool to like ignore because <laughs> it seems to be growing in importance if anything. So like I want to make sure that I you know gain some expertise there and then I can contribute the you know proof repair expertise um and I think I think together we'll end up with something really cool. So I'm, I'm excited. 
That's awesome. Do you, yeah. so how does this 50-50 work? Like, is it six months, six months? So it's, it's a summer appointment. 50, oh, 50% really just means like I'm expected to spend like half my time on the Google stuff this summer. Um, and um, I'll be in Mountain View, like on campus. Um, but then I'm still, you know, 50% of the time, like I have student projects and so on over the right, summer, which right, I'll still right. be advising. Yeah. Um, that that's really 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 interesting that those those sort of collaborations go on, because yeah. th that sort of collaboration that that I've seen before was when professor goes in sabbatical, so they take a year off and then they go to work a little bit in the industry and then they come back later. Yeah, yeah, and I've seen a lot of like like just before starting a faculty job, a lot of people would go for like a year, um, and do the same kind of thing that I'm doing. But yeah, you can you can actually do it after starting a little bit. And I think this is really common in, in other areas like machine learning, where like industry collaboration is like very um, important for a lot of different kinds of work that you might want to do. Um, but yeah, it's cool. I'm also excited to just like share proof assistance with everyone there. I, <laughs> yeah, I've already offered I've offered Jeff Dean like a like a crash course in proof assistance, which he oh has expressed God. interest in. And that would be the most fun thing ever to teach to, and like a, just a fun person to teach. So yeah, yeah, that's so cool. That's amazing. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah, <laughs> pretty cool. You think that your ADHD have somehow been on, on, on your way to do research? Like a barrier or yes. like a, oh, I see. Okay, yeah. Um. Well, this is interesting. Um, so it's really hard for me to separate my ADHD from like how I think in general. Um, but from what I gather, I think it, it has been both a barrier and a huge like booster. <laughs> like like uh, some ways it's really good. Like, um, uh, you know, I get a couple of pages into a research paper or like a couple of slides into a talk and like suddenly I just have all these ideas because like my brain is just spinning off onto all the cool things I could do. And then like I get really obsessed with them and, and I sometimes will pursue them without, you know, any fear of consequences. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's like so-called impulsivity. And like it's weird because impulsivity is one of those things where you could think of it as like, you know, like bad um, because I think societally it's, it's often bad. But like, you know, it could also be it's like it's like how I you know started a mentoring program without worrying about <laughs> what would be involved and it's how I ended up doing research where people are sometimes you know scared of pursuing like certain topics um and I think a little bit of that is is like it can be really good in research like a little bit of that you know fearlessness that impulsivity the like the the rapid fire ideas I think uh yeah where it mostly gets in the way is like um uh like i guess adhd like really amplifies like uh um the effect of like something you like like how easy it is to to do the thing <laughs> so like um you know for every person ever um if you're interested in something it's easier to do the thing than if you're not interested in it i think with adhd it's like that but like on like just like orders of magnitude like more intense than that so like 
um, if I'm really interested in something, like like I really like writing. So if I write a paper, sometimes I will sit down and just lose like 12 hours of my life, like just writing and writing because like I just I just have no idea what else is going on. But that means I'll often neglect the things that I need to do, <laughs> but I don't <laughs> want to do. <laughs> um, that might be like checking email. Like email has just been just like hell. I just have so much work going into figuring out how to make email work mm-hmm. for me. Um, it might be like um, just really like administrative stuff, like just boring yeah. administrative yeah. stuff, like like getting my health insurance set up, um, yeah. <laughs> and like uh, just managing the rest of my life, which which will like sometimes I get too interested in my work, and then the rest of my life just kind of like <laughs> ADHD is often also associated with procrastination. You don't get yeah. that. I think it's procrastination again, mostly for the things where you're not immediately interested in them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are some things I procrastinated on. I don't know if it shows up as much in my work, but like booking doctor's appointments. Um, sometimes I'll procrastinate for an entire year. <laughs> like <laughs> I should book this appointment next week, and I just drag it, and it just goes on for a whole year. Um, I do yeah. that with dentists. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're like reading my mail, like just like my like actual physical mail, just like yeah. pile up in a corner of my room. <laughs> like I don't want to look at this. This is stressful. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think at work I've been lucky like to be able to build my life around things that I'm excited about, which is why it doesn't show up as much. Right. Um, that's amazing. Where it shows up at work, I think, is with like emotion regulation. Um, that's mm. a thing which do people mean? don't. Oh yeah, yeah. People don't know about this as much, I guess. But like. Uh, um one thing with ADHD is like uh um I always think of it as like a if you had a like a, a process manager in your brain <laughs> that like controls the, the things that you're paying attention to, the things right. that you're doing. Um it's kind of like having a process manager that's like out of control. So like it sometimes it will just spin off on one process and that can be like writing a paper again. Um it can also be like fixating on a feeling. Um so a place this comes up a lot with with ADHD is like rejection um, from like people you care about. Um, so if someone says something really critical, like if I get a review where you know a reviewer says something kind of hurtful, it's like spinning out into like these feelings of despair, wow. <laughs> and it's like overwhelming. It's mm-hmm. like not, it's it's not. I mean, everyone gets sad, I think, with like bad review, but it's like um, just these really intense feelings. Um, and they pass fairly quickly, but it's also, it's so intense that you often can't really like control how you react easily. Um, and so you might like cry in front of people (laughs) or like, um, you know, you might get really defensive, um, or talk about how everything in review is broken (laughs) or, you know, um, there are many, there are many broken things in, in academia <laughs> that we have, we definitely have to think about for it's our true. generation of researchers. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Do you have advice for other research, for other students that have ADHD? Hmm. That's interesting. Where do I even start? I mean, I feel like, so for the emotion stuff, I think the emotion stuff is just not recognized enough and it's like really, really big and can impact like your relationships with um, your advisors or your students or, um, you know, other researchers or how people perceive you. 
um, in the rest of the community. Um, and like for that, I think um, getting familiar with the emotional impacts is really important um, and setting good like communication norms with the people who are working closely with you. If you're willing to be open about it, I think also really helps. Um, accommodations are useful. Um, like if, again, if you're comfortable disclosing um, and it is like, like Americans with Disability Act in the US, like it totally qualifies. So yeah, um, I mean, medication has always helped me like that. I started when I was like 19 um, and I couldn't follow like conversations with like three or more people <laughs> until I started taking medication. So it de that definitely helps me a lot. Um, yeah, there's also, we have a Slack, which is cool. I started a, like a neurodivergent in computer science Slack, which is a bunch of people, like mostly like ADHD and like autism, um, who are just computer scientists who just, we just talk to each other. We share strategies and stories and, you know, like rant about all the, <laughs> the things that are disproportionately hard. Like, <laughs> oh gosh, reimbursements. That's one that I forgot about. That's like hell with ADHD. Just, no, like I, every people with ADHD I've spoken to, but sometimes rather lose thousands of dollars than like send back receipts <laughs> to an admin because <laughs> it's just the hardest thing in the world. It's like, yeah. you can literally like quantify like how, you know, how much money this is worth to you. And you're like thousands. <laughs> this is difficult. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> this reminds me that I still have to do the the one for Uppsala. <laughs> Good luck. Godspeed. Yeah. It's it's on, it's it's on it's an ongoing process. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> what about for students for PhD students in general? What's your advice for doing a successful PhD? Oh man. If any. I don't even know where to start with that. I feel like it's so different depending on your experiences. Um, and there's also like a survivorship bias that I <laughs> worry about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, hmm. Any advice for a successful PhD? My Gosh. advice would be just survive. <laughs> survive. <laughs> That's fair. It's a good place to start, huh? I feel like I spent a lot of time worrying about fitting into everyone else's image of what a successful researcher was. Yeah. Um, and I think I should have spent less time worrying about that. I don't think it actually changed my actions, but it definitely made me feel a lot worse. <laughs> um, <laughs> and like, you know, it's like, it, you're still an individual. And when you go on the market, you are an individual. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, any way that you stand out is going to be interesting. And that doesn't necessarily have to be like having the most publications. It can be, you know, other things that you do for the community. It can be writing a survey paper like I did or starting a mentoring program or like, you know, they're, they're just like, yeah, one person I, I know who went on the job market said that like the fact that they had a lot of successful tools that people used um, really helped them because people who were interviewing them had like, you know, used their tools before. Yeah. So yeah, there, there are other ways to stand out. Um, And I think, yeah, I would worry less about, you know, fitting into what everyone else thinks is 
the successful researcher and more about you know doing it your way yeah um, now with that said there's like a huge survivorship bias there because i did it my way and i got the, <laughs> you know the job i wanted but like maybe you know i'm sure i'm sure there is an effect there where like no, there are probably limits to that statement i definitely see that i definitely see that because the more you can be yourself the more you show that you can be a leader that you can think on your own and that you can you know be relevant in some sense yeah and I think a lot of getting a job comes down to like having a personal brand (laughs) and like don't tell anyone but that's one of the ideas of the podcast (laughs) 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 well I think I might have went through everything I wanted I think there is one last question that you said that one of the things that definitely helped you on your application was the the survey you did QED at large how did that come about what how did you meet your collaborators and what was the idea you had there why did you Uh, make it yeah so that actually like I think that was mostly driven at the beginning by Zach Tatlock, um, who's one of the the authors of the paper. He's a professor at UW. Um, and Zach is one of these people who just has uh, what I would call contagious enthusiasm. Like, um, he can just make up an idea and say it to you. And you're like, yes, I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, which is a cool skill to have. Um, but yeah, at some point, um, like, Zach was like, um you know we, we were just meeting about something else and he's like it'd be really cool if we did a survey paper on proof engineering <laughs> and I was like yeah that would be cool <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I'm very much like a doer which is a really good pair I think with someone like Zach who has the right. like contagious enthusiasm because like if someone says we should do that thing and I'm like yeah that's a cool thing then I just go off and do it <laughs> and so like I was like okay let's do the thing now <laughs> <laughs> so we, we kind of put together a team and um it was a really good team of people um and we, yeah, we wrote this survey. It took a really long time. Um, a lot of, it was kind of going on in the background while their research was happening. Um, and it took a lot of conversations, like interviews with people in the community, like during which I learned so much. Um, so yeah, it was really fun. Um, definitely very different, you know, not a traditional move, but I think it was cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad that you, that you make it. It's, yeah. it's very nice. Okay, so last question. What's your favorite paper in PL? In all of PL? All of PL. All the, the best paper you've ever read and made you, you know, I don't know, maybe made you ch- change how you inherently think about something or made you feel really... Yeah, there was... What was it? There's this paper... So, okay, it's going to be a weird answer because it's not so much because of the paper itself. Um so much as like how I view research. Um, I forget what the paper is, but there's this paper about like the typed intermediate language, I think. Um, Like, I don't know if you say TIL or TIL or whatever. Um, So this had like a, some kind of test of time award, right? Um, At Popple. Gosh. I'll have to look this up later to make sure I'm not saying something ridiculous. But um, one thing I remember about this paper is that, like, the first time I read it, um, 
So you so see, there's this paper, and then there's like a, a retrospective. I forget if it was like 10 or 15 years later, like when they had this like tested time award. Um, and the paper had this list of contributions. Um, and the contributions that they guessed <laughs> were nothing at all related <laughs> to the, the contribution like 10 years later. And it made me feel so good for some reason because I was so nervous that like I had to be able to see, you know, exactly how like every single paper I wrote was going to fit into the world when I wrote these contributions and so on. And it made me like realize that there's so much of this is like just up to forces of chaos. It and is. like you just put a paper into the world, you just put an idea out there because you think it's a good idea. And, you know, maybe someone picks it up, maybe they don't, maybe they pick up like you know, something really small in there that you didn't think was a big deal. And maybe it's a huge deal. <laughs> yeah. It just made me feel better for some reason. Cause it like, um, I didn't feel like I always had to predict the exact future. It's just like, just put a lot of good stuff out there and like, um, you know, maybe something really cool will happen. <laughs> Isn't it frightening at the same time? Because you don't know what kind of harm it can cause as well. Right. In yeah. Yeah. I mean, you always have to be thinking about, yeah, but it's true. Yeah, if you can't predict all the good uses of things, yeah. for sure you can't predict all the evil uses yeah, of things. Yeah. Um, but that's that's the thing. Like, it's impossible. It's impossible to to know what like science is kind of neutral in a sense, right? Like, it's just ideas. Yeah, I mean, it's only as neutral as the people doing it. Mm, so we mm -hmm. have to make sure that we're bringing in, you know, people with point. diverse backgrounds and perspectives, and um, and always thinking critically about the impacts of our work. But yeah. it is hard. It, there's not like an easy answer to, like, <laughs> to ethics in general. So for sure, yeah. Okay, last question now. Unless... <laughs> the third. <laughs> yeah, I just last remembered. Question. I just remembered one last last question. So, <laughs> any advice for someone who wants more visibility on Twitter? <laughs> oh gosh. Um, yeah, I mean, if you make a couple influential friends, this makes a big difference. Um, like, I think the the biggest gains in following that I had were from when I had a friend who, like, retweeted me who has, like, you know, like, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of right. followers or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like, yeah. And I actually, like, at this level of, you know of of influence which is like eight eight or nine thousand followers it's I, so I already will get people messaging me like can you retweet this thing that i said um and you know unless it's a totally unreasonable request i'll usually say yes because it's like it's a way to help someone get more and visibility so, yeah that's yeah. awesome yeah so i think it's okay not to be afraid to ask for those kinds of things. Oh my god, I think you're gonna get so many requests now if you if you put that on there. <laughs> Are you sure you want that? <laughs> I think it's fine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just making sure. Yeah, it's using visibility for good as long as they're reasonable requests. <laughs> That's a very good point. Important point. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of at some at some point I, I really liked my Twitter, but somehow at some point it started downrating really fast on being you know like just a bunch of discussions that i don't enjoy anymore and i feel less and less motivated to use it nowadays mm, i don't know yeah it's hard you social have to media really... is hard I, I feel in general yeah for sure well cool. I, <laughs> I think that's it then is there anything else that we didn't have the the chance to talk about that would like to bring some 
visibility. I think I think that's it. Yeah, it's been good. It's All good right. to see you. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank you. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did recording it. Talia is just an amazing person, so full of ideas. It was an amazing opportunity for me to catch up. If you guys have suggestions on what we can do to help reduce sexism in academia, and more particularly in PL, leave us a comment on our website www.typetheoryforall.com or on Twitter and just make sure to add us at ttforall. If you like this episode, make sure to check the other 12 we have before. And I think that's it for today. I hope to see you guys next time.